Welcome to The Long Box of Darkness, a weekly podcast looking at horror in comic book form. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me as we take a peek into The Long Box of Darkness. Listeners, I'm back for our first official episode. Uh, last week we did the preview episode, which was entitled Episode Zero, but now we're, we'll start the proper numbering at episode number one. So uh, this week, the object of our scrutiny is none other than the legendary Creepshow comic, written by Stephen King with art by Bernie Wrightson, cover by Jack Kamen, based on the George A. Romero film of the same name, from 1982. And Creepshow the comic came out in 1982 as well. It was a graphic novella first published by Penguin Imprint. And it consists of five tales written by Stephen King. Two of the tales are based on some of his short stories that were never published. And um, the remaining stories were written solely for the Creepshow movie. In my opinion, Stephen King lucked out getting Bernie Wrightson to do the art on The Five Tales because Wrightson's a horror master without peer. He's illustrated countless tales for creepy and eerie magazines published by Warren and also for DC Comics under the mantle of the House of Mystery and the House of Secrets. He also co-created Swamp Thing with Len Wein, which he illustrated for a fair amount of time. So, of course, Wrightson, a legend. And as a comic book fan, for me, the stories are great, but in this particular instance, Wrightson's art outshines the writing of even the master uh, himself. Now, I've briefly introduced the artist, but I'd also like to mention another famous artist that was involved with this project. He only did the cover of the comic book, but wow, what a cover it is. It's art by Jack Kamen. Jack Kamen, famous for his illustrations of the old EC comics, horror magazines, and and, um, tales, published in the late 40s and early 50s before the Comic Book Code Authority shut them down. Cayman was a great artist with creepy, well-rendered, disturbingly accurate illustrations, nightmarish almost. And uh, he does so on the cover as well. Even though this is 30 years after after his heyday, his illustrations still pack a punch. And here on this Creepshow cover, you have an image of a young boy sitting in his room reading a comic book. And the comic book itself is Creepshow, which is the comic book we're holding in our hands right now. So it's a bit of a fourth wall commentary there. And we see the boy sitting on his bed in his room and against his wall he has three movie posters. One is Dawn of the Dead, George Romero's famous film of zombies. And then another one is The Shining uh, by Stanley Kubrick. 
uh, obviously based off of Stephen King's novel. And then uh, another poster for the movie Carrie, also a Stephen King book turned into a film. So the cover itself is heavily plugging the people involved with this project, in this case, uh, King and Romero. And then we see uh, the rest of the cover, which is shows the boy's window and outside the window against the backdrop of a moon-filled sky and a creepy old tree, there is a skeletal figure, probably Death himself, lurking beyond the window, gazing in at the boy, but also gazing directly at the reader with one bloodshot eye stuck in his empty skull socket. Well, not as empty, of course. <laughs> one is empty, the one is filled with a, this horrible orb. And um, yes, he does have some flesh on his bones in terms of his hands, but the rest of him is completely skeletal. So then there's a short uh, caption box saying, Now, a very scary movie, screenplay by Stephen King, produced by Richard P. Rubenstein, directed by George A. Romero. And the cover itself is pretty creepy. The creepiest thing about it um, is the smile on the young boy's face as he reads the creepy comic. It's a very evil kind of grin, like, aha, I, my mom and dad don't know what I'm doing. That kind of look on his face. And um, interesting bit of trivia here. The boy in the movie was portrayed by Stephen King's eldest son, Joe Hill who's now also become a famous horror author. He's also done a comic book series called Lock and Key for IDW with artist Gabriel Rodriguez. And Joe himself had some acting chops back in the day. I think he was eight year old, uh, an eight-year-old at the time. And um, he got a role in the movie as the kid reading the comic um, who gets in trouble with his dad for reading the so-called trash and uh, that's him being portrayed on the cover by Jack Heyman, immortalized, as it were, in print. And the final name that should be mentioned in the production and creation of this comic book and of the movie itself is, of course, George Romero. Uh, rest in peace, George. He passed away about three weeks ago. I wanted to start the podcast during that week, but I wasn't ready yet. And I picked the Creepshow comic to pay homage to him. But he didn't really have much to do with the comic book field itself, although he certainly provided enough inspiration for the movie to be turned into a graphic novella. So uh, George Romero, one of the greatest directors of the horror genre, and he popularized the zombie film genre with Day of the Dead and Night of the Living Dead. He will always be remembered by horror fans everywhere, I'm sure. All right, well, let's get into the comic. There are five tales, as I've mentioned before. Uh, first tale is entitled Father's Day. Second tale, The Lonesome Death of Geordie Verrill. Third tale, The Crate. And then the fourth tale, Something to Tide You Over. And finally, the title of the last tale is They Creeping Up On You. They're creeping up on you. All right, let's get into the first uh, comic book. The first tale. This one is interesting because in the movie it starred a young Ed Harris as the lover of a woman um, who comes to meet her family. 
And um, so I will always remember Ed for this very early role that I saw him in, which was Stephen King's Creepshow. The comic book follows a similar um, story to the movie. It's almost word for word exact, exactly like the, the movie. Um, rich family called the Ganthams have a matriarch called Aunt Bedelia, whom they thank for their riches because she murdered their stingy old grandfather, Nathan Grantham. And so the family um, fortune was released into their hands and they've all been stinking rich ever since. Uh, as it turned out, Aunt Bedelia murdered her father, Nathan Grantham, on Father's Day after he was um, yelling for his Father's Day cake, being a senile old man and being hungry and wanting attention from his daughter. He kept tapping his and, and stamping his cane on the floor, irritating the bejesus out of uh, Bedelia, and she finally grabbed a green ashtray and commenced pulverizing his skull with it until he would tap his cane no more. So why did she do that? As it turns out, uh, her father was a horrible man. He was horrible towards her and towards all of his family members. He was um, declared infirm and needed a permanent caretaker. Uh, and for 30 years, Bedelia took care of him. Finally, she wanted to be free. She met someone, um, a guy called Yarbro, and she wanted to marry him. But her father disapproved, so Nathan Grantham had Mr. Yarbrough killed during a hunting accident, and Bedelia knew about it. She never forgave her father for it, but she couldn't bring herself to kill him, so she nursed him for 30 years. But then finally, on one particular Father's Day, she just had enough. He was yelling for his Father's Day cake, and that's it. Game over. She killed him. And ever since then, the family has been forever in her debt. However... Uh, the grandchildren of Nathan Grantham, the niece and nephew and younger sister of Aunt Bedelia, they have designs on the family fortune themselves. Of course, they wouldn't go so far as to murder Aunt Bedelia, but they get together every Father's Day on the anniversary of Nathan Grantham's death to celebrate their fortune. So in this particular case, a man called Hank has tagged along. He has intentions of marrying Sylvia, the niece of Aunt Bedelia. And um, things are going well. They're having a right bit of a nice party when Aunt Bedelia arrives. And before Hank gets to meet her, she takes uh, you know, a bit of a detour to go and visit her father's grave. And Hank is assured that this is completely normal. Aunt Bedelia does this every year to honor her father. She still feels guilty. She gets drunk on top of his grave. Um, located in the family uh, cemetery on the grounds of this giant mansion in which they live in. Formerly, of course, uh, Nathan Grantham's mansion. So then things take a horrible turn. Um, this particular Father's Day is different because, as it turns out, uh, while Bedelia is wallowing on her father's grave, um, let's just say that the dead get restless and come looking for that... Uh, long ago cake, Father's Day cake that was denied to uh, Nathan Grantham and basically people die. That's as succinctly as I can put it. There's a lot of death, a lot of carnage, necks get broken, uh, um, severed heads planted on top of uh, cakes 
with candles uh, um, surrounding it. Uh, pretty gruesome, pretty gruesome stuff. And of course, Bernie writes and specializes in gruesome horror illustration. So he does it so well that it really pops off the page. So for this particular uh, episode, we're going to use the skull rating system. Uh, that's right. So I give this comic because of its shock value alone and the amazing illustrations, 7 out of 10 skulls. Um, I subtracted a few skulls uh, just because some things completely don't make sense. They never explain why um, the dead get reanimated. It just does. It just happens in typical EC horror comic fashion, which is, in fact, what Stephen King based most of these stories off of. He was a big fan of the EC horror comics when he was a kid. So it follows this illogical, supernatural turn of events. All right, so then we get to the second story, um, as I said, entitled The Lonesome Death of Geordie Verrill. Now, in this story, Stephen King portrayed Geordie Verrill himself in the movie. And Stephen King did it in a funny, kooky, weird kind of way, which is basically all the roles that he's ever done. He frequently shows up in movies as himself or as these offbeat, oddball characters. Uh, most recently, I saw him in Sons of Anarchy, the TV show, where he portrayed this um, guy who disposes of corpses, this cleaner. And um, he does it in a very humorous way. He's, he's got some deadpan delivery, um, uh, you know, to his credit. But um, I, this didn't really work for me. Jordi Verrill in the, in the movie uh, was too silly and, and Stephen King overacted a bit. Of course, he had no acting experience or um, you know, what, whatsoever. But in the comic book itself, uh, the story is quite, quite a bit better than in the movie because the movie special effects were horrific. But on the page with Bernie Wrightson's illustrations, it looks uh, quite scary and quite horrific, terrifying even. Although the story is not that great, I again love the art here. And basically, to give you a synopsis, a meteorite crashes on Geordie Verrill's farm. Now, Geordie not being the brightest um, guy around, he has dreams of selling this meteorite to the local university to get some cash to pay off a bank loan. All right, so Jordi uh, goes through with his plan. The first thing he needs to do is to get the meteorite to the university. So he touches it, and the meteorite is scalding hot. It burns his hand and uh, leaves some fungal traces on his fingers. He also proceeds to cool it down with some water, which turns out to be a mistake because whatever fungal matter came from the meteorite starts growing and growing on everything and anything it can find. So it spreads quickly, especially in contact with water. Geordie's dreams are suitably dashed. And uh, here Bernie's love of illustrating muck-like swamp creatures comes to the fore because what happens to poor Geordie as the fungus spreads all over his farm is particularly um, gruesome when you compare it to Wrights and Swamp Thing comics um, or comics like the Marvel's Man Thing or The Heap. And um, you'll see some great illustration throughout. But because the story is so simplistic, it 
uh, doesn't really have any twists or turns or any um, incredibly shocking moments. I have to say that this is one of my least favorite stories in the collection. Therefore, it can only get four out of ten skulls. All right, so then the third story is possibly my favorite in the entire book. It's called The Crate. And the, this is one of the stories that Stephen King wrote, but it was never collected. Um, a short story. And he adapted it for the screen and for this comic book itself. Great story. It starts with a janitor called Mike, who works at the uh, local university um, named Horlicks University. And he's bored. He's in the basement, tossing a coin, seeing if he gets heads or tails. And then he misses the... Uh, next coin toss, the coin rolls down underneath the stairs um, and the bottom of the stairs has for some reason been uh, covered by some kind of a grate, an iron grate, and the coin proceeds to roll through one of the openings of the grate and uh, gets lost underneath the stairs. So Mike investigates with his flashlight and what he finds underneath the staircase of the basement is an old wooden crate with the words Arctic Expedition on it. Uh, June 19, uh, June 19, uh, 1939 Arctic Expedition, to be exact. And this crate has obviously been there for, you know, more than 50 years. And um, what, what's the janitor to do when he finds a rare find like this? He's hoping to cash in on it, but he doesn't want to do so illegally, so he phones one of the lecturers at the university, one of the professors. So this uh, professor that's bound to get a phone call, he is across town at a boring faculty party where he sees his best friend uh, being embarrassed by a woman called Wilma Northrup. Now Wilma is the wife of said best friend um, and the best friend is called, if I, if I remember correctly, Henry Northrup and uh, this uh, professor called Dexter Stanley. Dexter Stanley, you know, views this um, scene that Wilma puts up when she when, when she gets drunk and embarrasses her husband in front of everybody. And he consoles his friend. He says, "I know you've really come to hate her, but you know, don't you know, don't do anything rash. You know, you you guys can figure it out. You'll sort it out." But um, just as he's uh, uh, about to give more advice, someone calls uh, calls and tells him that he's got a phone call from the university. So Professor Stanley heads over to talk to Mike the janitor who's phoning him and telling him about this crate that he's discovered in the basement. So of course Dexter's uh, very interested, he heads over to the university right away and uh, Mike and Professor Stanley investigate this crate. They first take off the iron grate and then they pull the crate out but it's locked fast with um, huge um, locks and chains. So um, they try to get it open. Mike, the janitor, arrives. And with a crowbar, he pops open the crate. But just as the crate gets popped open, this, these eerie green eyes peer out from beneath the crate, the lid of the crate. And um, unknown to Dexter and Mike, because they're in a in the basement. It's it's dark in there. They don't know what's going on. But as soon as they uh, take off the lid, which they haven't completely taken it off. They've just cracked it open a little bit. 
there's this eerie sound that pours from the crate itself. And Mike reaches his hand into the crate to see what's in there. And for some reason, they're not scared at all. They, Mike even attributes it to escaping gases, or, or Professor Stanley does. He says it's, it's gases escaping from the crate, uh, which makes it sound like a whistling of some sort. And then as Mike reaches his hand into the crate, uh, the horror commences, let's just say. So whatever is in the crate proceeds to devour poor old Mike bit by bit. Uh, Professor Stanley tries to pull him out of the crate. It's not working. Uh, he's being pulled into the crate in suitably terrifying fashion, screaming all the while. Uh, the thing that, that is in the crate, you never get a, a great glimpse of what it is. It could be a werewolf, it could be some form of monstrous Tans Tasmanian devil, but whatever it is, it's obviously supernatural. It's been in the crate for more than 50 years, and it's uh, strong enough to pull Mike into the crate and devour him at the same time. Blood spilling everywhere. Uh, Professor Stanley can't, uh, you know, take it anymore. He runs in terror from whatever's happening. He calls a student uh, for help. The student doesn't believe him, so uh, they both go to investigate. The crate has been removed from the lab where they in the basement where they were opening it. It has been pulled back into its recess or, or um, place beneath the stairs. Um, the student sees a trail of blood leading uh, underneath the stairs and a being a, an incredibly brave uh, student, he investigates, and as he checks the darkness beneath the stairs, he's attacked by the same creature. And things just get more horrific from there. We get to see a little bit more of the creature then. As he devours the student, Dexter again leaves and runs away. He doesn't know what to do. Why he doesn't call the cops, for the life of me, I don't know. But he heads straight towards his best friend, Henry Northrop's house. And he tells Henry the entire tale. Henry says uh, the next morning they'll figure out what to do. But as it turns out, Henry has a plan to utilize whatever is living in that crate beneath the stairs to get revenge on his wife, Wilma. So I'll say no more because there are going to be spoilers if, if anybody wants to read it. But I'd highly recommend the story. It's very bloody. A great twist. Um... Lots of uh, cool panels, great panel layout, uh, great art, and good writing from King too. The dialogue is funny and um, very apt. I really enjoy uh, Wilma's dialogue in particular. She's uh, definitely uh, the quintessential bitch, and Stephen King writes her just like that. So great story, and the creature itself is incredibly frightening its teeth alone as illustrated by rights and and its gums oh man it's, it's ridiculous it doesn't really look like a werewolf at all but it has features of a werewolf it's hard to describe it's got these green glowing eyes massive mane it's almost like a cross between a lion and a werewolf or a lion a werewolf and a baboon <laughs> anyway you have to read it and see it to believe it so uh, that is the third story, The Crate. And because of the brilliant art and great story and oh shit moments in this story, I would have to give it uh, 9 out of 10 skulls. It's that good. I almost can't find any fault with it. 
other than the fact that it doesn't follow any logical um, uh, it doesn't follow any logic because uh, after that first initial attack why would Dexter Stanley uh, enlist the help of a student and why wouldn't he just call the police or, or the authorities or campus security for, for heaven's sake at least all right, so then we get to the fourth story called Something to Tide You Over. All right, now this story is also one of the less appealing stories for me, at least in this volume. It's got an interesting premise, but I've, I've seen it done before, about a man who wants to get revenge on another guy who has been cuckolding him. So the younger man has been uh, cheating or um, this older man's wife has been cheating on him with this younger man. And the older man has planned revenge. He has buried the younger man uh, at gunpoint up to his head um, on the beach. And he's waiting for the tide to come in to drown this guy. And before, then something really crazy happens. After he leaves the guy, he comes back. The old man comes back with a TV set and an incredibly long... A power cord attached to the TV set um, and then he proceeds to set up the TV uh, in front of the this buried young man who, whose head is sticking out of the sand and he uh, proceeds to show him what happened to his lover um, Becky as the girl is called and as he sees Becky had been buried hours before in the sand and the tape on the TV shows Becky drowning as the tide comes in and it turns out that this young guy called Harry did really and truly love Becky because he finds this horrific he screams her name and he can't believe she's dead and he curses the old man for doing that the old man says well I'll leave you here Harry to die and die he does because the tide keeps coming in um, and on the TV he sees Becky's head going under the water the TV's washed away, and it's curtains for poor old Harry. Then we get another weird and creepy uh, panel uh, illustration by Bernie Wrightson. It's a scene of Harry's head completely submerged underwater, bubbles coming out of his mouth and nose and his hair floating around him. He's obviously dead, and this is the way he's going to remain, at least for a few panels. And as it turns out, the rich old guy who had been cuckolded is now back in his mansion, his beach house, and he has been watching Harry's demise on a TV monitor himself. He decides to go clean up the bodies, but when he heads back to the beach, the bodies are missing. He presumes they've been washed out uh, to sea, and he goes back home to take a shower. But as it turns out, some uh, watery footprints have been detected in his house. Uh, two corpses are slinking up the stairs and the sound effects are a little bit over the top here. You've got almost an entire page filled with them. Squish, skish, drip, drip, squish. So this guy who, you know, turned, murdered both of these corpses, the corpses appropriately are, of course, Harry and Becky, he suffers the same fate. They end up burying him up to his head on the beach. And they walked into the ocean together 
right after they buried him, uh, hand in hand, presumably, since their uh, footprints lead into the ocean. So I guess they died happy at the end. Uh, not so much the old guy who has cuckolded it, because you know, he went crazy, laughing himself um, into insanity. I didn't really much care for this story, so I would only give it three skulls out of ten. Stephen King can usually put great characters on the page with, with within a few uh, lines of dialogue or sentences. He could do that, but in this case it didn't really happen. It seemed like just another easy story that King wanted to tell in the typical horror vein from the 50s, so he just came up with this uh, silly premise. But there are some scary scenes. Like I said, the, the panel of um, Harry's head underwater, that's well done. And then also when the two corpses are walking up the stairs with the squishy sounds they make, pretty, pretty eerie. I was expecting them to enact, uh, you know, bloody vengeance, not just bury him up to his head in the sand, but oh well, that happened. And um, you know, a forgettable story. Then we get to the last story, which really, really, really creeped me out. Hence, obviously, the name Creep Show. The story is also called They're Creeping Up on You. And for anybody who hates bugs, roaches, uh, creepy crawlies, this is definitely a story to avoid. But if you've got the guts, if you're brave enough to witness what happens to the protagonist of the story in their creeping up on you, then read on. So basically it's a rich old guy uh, who owns an apartment building. He's called Upson Pratt. <laughs> um, and he has a phobia for bugs. He keeps spraying them uh, with a raid, but for some reason it doesn't work. There, there are bugs all over his white and spotlessly clean apartment building, apartment complex, the entirety of which he owns. And at many points in the story, his wealth is mentioned. Apparently he's wealthier than some of the richest kings and queens who has ever lived. And it turns out that these bugs are on a quest to make his life hell. Because throughout the evening, um, it's a, a weekend, so there are no exterminators available, these bugs, these carroaches keep creeping all over his uh, telephone, his desk, his computer terminal, uh, his chair. He even uh, inadvertently sits on some of them, squashing them, and they're stuck to his robe. And he calls uh, one of the exterminators up, even though the exterminator is not technically supposed to be working. The guy uh, does come up, and when he finally does um, Ups and Pratt stares at him through the uh, keyhole and or the peephole I should say and the man's face turns into the face of a giant roach so obviously this is all in Ups and Pratt's head but when he looks through the peephole again the man has returned to normal he still refuses to let him in to refuse he refuses to let this uh, exterminator in because you know now he's paranoid maybe this man is a roach and while all this is happening, the roaches just keep pouring and pouring into his apartment. And throughout this ordeal, he gets several phone calls. One phone call he gets is from a woman who accuses him of, of causing the death of her husband inadvertently by 
destroying his company and destroying his life and so that he committed suicide and uh, basically it's absent Pratt's fault and absent Pratt says well he grew up in the projects he knows what to do what to do with bugs and the man was nothing more than a bug and he knows how to squash bugs which he did and the wife screams at him rails and curses him she says I hope you die of cancer and uh, absent Pratt responds with go eat a light bulb bitch and hangs up on her pretty harsh he's obviously a horrible human being so as it turns out he's done this to many people throughout his career as an industrialist and he views people as insects insects which he likes to trod on to tread on and to crush beneath his heel and because of that as it turns out the the bugs are now out for revenge because uh, that's what the story seems to imply that every life that he has ruined has somehow been transmogrified into or reincarnated into one of these bugs, one of these roaches who are now assailing him from all sides. So he, things get pretty bad and he calls the exterminator, but the exterminator again uh, says now, you know, it's impossible for him to come out. Absent Brett starts screaming because the roaches are everywhere. And then there's a blackout. Power goes out and the roaches pour all over him. But by morning, the roaches are all gone. And Upson is sitting against his wall, um, eyes staring at nothing, seemingly dead, and all the roaches are gone. And at the very end, on the last page, his mouth opens and thousands of roaches pour from his throat. And that's basically how the final story ends. So gruesome ending. I like this because of the creep factor, the way he writes and draws the bugs, the, the roaches. It really gave me goosebumps and sent shivers down my spine. I hate bugs like a lot of people do. And this story really played on that fear. And it worked. It worked for me really well. So definitely um, I would give this story uh, 8 out of 10 in terms of our skull rating system. Great comic book. I would recommend this for horror fans, especially fans of Stephen King and of great horror art. So we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, I'll tell the sordid tale of how I first found this comic, how I first bought it and read it, what it did to me as a kid. I didn't want you to read this crap. I never saw such rotten crap in my life. Where do you get this shit? Who sells it to you? I'm talking to you, young man. You want to answer me when I'm talking to you. You remember who puts the friggin' bed on the table around here, don't you? Stan, don't be too hard on him. All the kids are huh? My boy isn't all the kids. Want to know where this is going, Billy? In the garbage. Right into the friggin' garbage. Now, you got any smart mouth about that? No, it's any worse than the books you keep in your dresser. Those ones under your underwear. Those sex books. Stan, you didn't have to hit him. Not only do I find out he's reading this crap, he's a goddamn little snoop as well. No, for the blind dad! Don't put me down your coffin! The windows are open downstairs. I better get down and close them. The rain will get in. No, I'll do it. I got some garbage I want to throw away. Daddy, please don't throw it away. I'm sorry. The next time, young man, I find you with a worthless piece of shit like this again, you want to sit down for a week, buddy boy. Remember that. Tuck in. When I was a kid, and this was when I was about 10 years old, around 1987 or so, I used to go with my mom to the 
Krugerstor Public Library, which was um, in the neighboring town next to where I grew up. The town where I grew up was called Ranfontein, South Africa. There were a lot of places to get comics in South Africa. Uh, corner stores, supermarkets, they used to have spinner racks, one or two, three if you're lucky. And that's where I got my comics from. But they didn't always stock horror comics. They had a couple of man things, swamp things, uh, lots of other things, stuff like Tomb of Dracula, House of Mystery, House of Secrets. And it was at this public library that I got bored one day. They didn't have a lot of uh, science fiction titles or horror novels that I liked. So I started to walk around the neighborhood a bit and I found this little thrift store. I can't remember the name of this place. Anyway, I wasn't much interested in the name back then. I was just interested what, in what was inside. And it, it looked more like a bookstore, even though they sold quite a few other things, but mostly books. So um, you could also call it a secondhand bookstore. But I remember the owner described it as a thrift store. And I started looking around inside and I saw they had quite a large magazine section. And tucked away in that self-same section were a lot of comic books. But some of them were in the magazine format. We're talking eerie and creepy magazines here from Warren Publishing. And uh, Boris Karloff, uh, magazines like that, focusing on, on lots of uh, horror, actually, and science fiction, which was strange for South Africa back in the day. They tried to keep those kind of comics away from kids generally speaking, I think. But it was in that thrift store that I picked up my first copy of Creepshow. I don't know how it got there. It was definitely secondhand, all dog-eared, spine all bent, a uh, couple of loose pages. Uh, the, the art was a little bit faded, but it was definitely readable. And it was Bernie Wrightson's art, so I immediately... I picked it up, paid for it, and read it. I don't know when this was. This this might have been my third or fourth time at that shop, but I, I went to that shop quite a lot afterwards. And I always managed to pick up something special there. They always had comics. And the lady was pretty nice to me, the owner of the shop. She would always uh, keep the horror titles that came in and set them aside for me when I came. I was the only, probably the only uh, kid interested in those horror magazines. There must have been others, but, you know, I don't think... A lot of kids will walk into a thrift store, dusty old thrift store, looking for, for books. Well, I mean, who knows? I did. So that's how I first happened upon Creepshow. And I've since lost that original comic. But recently, in fact, this year, Creepshow was reprinted. And that's also one of the reasons why I decided to pick this comic and talk about it on my first uh, official Long Box of Darkness show. So that's a bit of my history with the comic of Creepshow. I, I read it to bits as a kid and loved it, and um, only watched the movie afterwards, after I, I read the comic. So of course, for me, the comic is far superior, because that came first in my mind. But the movie, although uh, not great, I would certainly not describe as unwatchable. 
I mean, Stephen King, after all, and George Romero. So, um, you know, definitely something that I would always uh, return to. Um, it's, it's definitely got some rewatchability in my mind. But the comic book, more so. I can reread it over and over again, even though there are a couple of stories that I clearly don't like. Um, based on the art alone, like I mentioned earlier, it's definitely worth my time every single time I pick it up and read it again. So I highly recommend it if you haven't read it before. But if you have, pick up this new copy, if you haven't already, and read it again and send your feedback. I'd love to hear from you if there are any listeners who want to make comments. Um, you can reach me at longboxofdarkness at gmail.com. That's longboxofdarkness at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at darklongbox. That's just Dark Longbox on Twitter. So please send me feedback. I'll, uh, if you send me audio clips to the Gmail address, I'd, I'd gladly play that on the show as well. So that's how I got a hold of Creepshow way back when. Okay, now we're going to take another short break. And when we come back, we've got an interview with one of the fans of the show. Well, maybe not a fan per se, but definitely a reluctant listener at least. Well, we're back, and since I'm sure you don't just want to hear my monotonous rambling on the subject of horror, let's get someone else's opinion. Making a return to the show is my disinterested friend, Erin. Erin, hi. How's it going? I'm fine, I guess. So, what have you been up to horror-wise? Well, not much. I've been reading a horror manga called... I'm a hero by some writer. I like Kengo Hanazawa, that guy? Yeah. That surprises me. You're not normally into reading horror, are you? Well, I have read The Walking Dead, so... I stand corrected. So, tell me, what do you know about Stephen King? The horror writer? Everyone knows who he is. Well, have you read his comic creep show? Or seen the movie? I've never heard of the movie. But what about the comic? Did I you get looked, a chance to look I over it? Looked over it, but I, I thought it's just okay. So the breathtaking art didn't grab you. Yeah, the art is pretty nice, but not nice, nice. It hurts my heart to hear you say that, Erin. It truly does. Well, everyone, that's our Erin segment for this week. I'm sure she'll come around one day. And see it our way. I mean, horror, come on. The greatest genre ever in film, novels, comic books. All right. I'd like to end the show by briefly talking about what I've been reading and then recommending some of these books to you listeners out there. Uh, normally, I try to read very broadly and I find that there are a lot of great horror titles out there. So we're living in an age where 
everything is easily accessible if you're a comic book reader, especially through Comixology and you know Amazon ships pretty much anywhere. So also you've got great comic book suppliers like Discount Comic Book Service in the States. Um, I do sometimes order through Midtown Comics, but they're expensive since I'm living here in Taiwan and Taipei. Um, if you're in the Taipei area, I guess there are a couple of good um, places, locations where you could get Western comic books, the Esli bookstores. Um, there's lots of manga shops, but I find that normally the manga available here is only in Chinese and in Japanese. So, you know, most of the stuff I get through Comixology or from my collections, which I've been, you know, the comics that I've been collecting for more than 30 years. And um, I'm slowly, of course, trying to fill in the gaps uh, in my House of Mystery runs, House of Secrets, Tomb of Dracula. I've got most of them. Uh, but, you know, comics are hard to get here. If you're looking for rare gems, there are no flea markets available, unfortunately. So, you know, I've got a, a friend in the States. He's a big flea market guy. He picks up lots of great things for me and then ships it back over to Taiwan. He's got some connections here. So I, I do uh, get the things I want. That, that's the point I want to make. But at the moment, I'm reading a series called Plastic, published by Image Comics. It's a five-issue creator-owned horror series. Um, the writer is Doug Wagner and the penciler is Daniel Hilliard. I think Laura Martin did the colors. Uh, she's a famous colorist. It's got great art and a very gruesome story. Basically, it's about this retired, or should I say semi-retired serial killer called Edwin, who is on a honeymoon with his wife, Virginia. But as it turns out, Virginia's kidnapped and Edwin then stalks the kidnappers. The only catch is Virginia is not quite what she seems. She turns out to be a blow-up doll. That's right. Edwin's wife is a blow-up doll and he treats her like a real person. So when she gets kidnapped, he flies off the handle and carnage ensues. A hilarious comic full of jokes, but like I say, very gruesome. There's lots of gory scenes. Um, Edwin, let me put it this way, he's quite a creative serial killer, probably because of his black ops training. Yeah, that's right. He turns out to be a highly trained government operative who went nuts and became a serial killer. So there's that. Great series. I would definitely recommend that to anybody who loves horror. Check it out from Image Comics. All right, before I wrap up the show, I'd also briefly like to mention I started a blog also entitled Long Box of Darkness, and you can find that at longboxofdarkness.com. Uh, very easy. And there I've written only one article at the moment, but more are on the way. Uh, please read it if you're into horror. I'm sure you'll like it. Well, that's it for this week. Tune in again next Wednesday for another peek into the long box of darkness. Thanks for listening.